but, but if it does freak everyone out, we'll, we can kind of take a step back. But I want to try something a little bit different tonight. One of the things you'll sometimes uh, hear from the front uh, when we're teaching and speaking in, at New City Church is sometimes we're going to say, I am not going to apply this for you. Let's have a conversation together about what this means for our lives. Let's apply this together. Rather than me telling you what you should do about this, let's actually do that uh, with one another together. Tonight, I'm going to take it back even a step further. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of model together the stuff that, uh, you know, those of us who are preachers and stuff do every time we prepare a sermon. And we're actually going to, together as a bunch of people, have a little bit of a think together about what are the things that stand out in this passage? What are the problematic things in this passage? What are, as you read it, what are the questions that you have about this passage? And we're going to chat about that together. Now, I've done some homework on this, so some of you uh, questions, hopefully I'll be able to give you a bit of a response for some context and what some other people have thought about it. And there's plenty of other people here in this room that have theological training uh, and that have done some of that hard thinking about this passage as well. But here's the thing. Um, I, per I personally, like, I have dual training in the sense that I was trained for theology and ministry, but I was also trained as a historian and as a teacher. And uh, it, it's funny, it actually took me, after having been like a history teacher for many, many years, um, it took me going to Bible college and having theological training and sitting in a room um, being taught how to uh, exegete the scriptures or how to like dive in and understand the scriptures and sitting there realizing, wait a minute, everything that you're doing and telling me to do is stuff that I already um, intrinsically do as a historian and stuff that I intrinsically do as an English teacher when I'm examining a text. And now you're telling me to bring all those skills to bear on the Bible. Now, some of that I had already been doing for a long time, but there was just an explicitness about it. Um, and here's the thing. It's not just a historian or an English teacher that has unique perspectives and gifts that we bring to Scripture. We have incredible actors and writers in this place. You guys bring a very unique perspective and an understanding of text and an understanding of what creates a performance, what gets a reaction from people and from a crowd. Um, we have, you know, we've got people from such a diverse range of backgrounds, people that spend every day listening to people and having them unburden themselves to you. <laughs> That's like you bring a unique perspective. You bring an understanding of human nature. That, and I don't know if you've thought explicitly about what a gift that is to the church and what a gift that is to us as we wrestle with Scripture. But it is just that. It's a gift. Some of you have very analytical uh, jobs, very analytical gifts and ways of thinking that you really look at the fine detail. I want to encourage you to put that lens on as you look at this text tonight. So what I'm asking is that you would bring your whole self to the passage that we're going to look at tonight. Because who you are is a gift to this community. All of you. Everything about you is a gift to us. And so I'm asking you to bring all of you tonight. Now, if it freaks you out to um, speak in front of people or stuff like that, or you, you know, you're nervous about asking a question, you don't, you, know, you don't have to. There is no uh, penalty for lack of participation tonight. Um, we will still allow you to drink the tea and coffee um, it's not Kool-Aid, I promise. 
uh, will still allow you to, you know, <laughs> there's no penalty for that. You know, if you've got, and, and if you're someone who's like, oh, I've got a really good question, but I don't want to ask it, hey, just hit someone else up and say, I need you to ask this for me. <laughs> okay? Um, because the point is not to make you feel uncomfortable, um, but the point is that together we would be able to engage with this text and experience it together as a community. Is that all right? All right, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to read through the entire passage together for a start. And the first time I just went, I'm going to put it up on the screen as we read it so that you can see it and hear it at the same time. But then we're going to start to go through it again. So the first time, I just want you to hopefully you know, engage all your senses, not that there's anything particularly beautiful to look up at the, at the screen, um, but really look and hear uh, the, the passage as it's being read. And then we're going to go through it, and I really would love for you to bring your questions. As one of my friends would say, there are no silly questions, only silly answers. Uh, so whatever question it is that you have for the passage, whatever question you have about the context, about what's going on here, it's not silly. If it's a question that comes out of looking at this, it's a good question. Yeah? And I can, I can almost guarantee someone else in the room would be thinking that question too. Yeah? All right. Are we ready? Yeah. All right. Here we go. So this is, uh, it says sometime later. So we've just finished John chapter 4, uh, where we've had Jesus engaging with the Samaritan woman at the well and breaking all sorts of boundaries, gender boundaries, moral boundaries, racial boundaries in that passage. And then just after that, Jesus actually heals the son of a royal official who probably worked in Herod Antipas' uh, temple or palace. So, yeah, palace, sorry, not temple. Uh, and Jesus has healed that person's son just with a word. Didn't even go to his place. Just said, right now your son is healed. And from that moment he was healed. All right. And that was, um, so we've had Jesus engaging with a Samaritan person who's a woman. We've had Jesus engaging with a Gentile person who works for a guy that is not Jesus' number one fan. And both of these people have had incredible experiences with Jesus. Okay, Jesus has been in Galilee and in Cana, and now he's coming back to Jerusalem. Here we go. <clears throat> Actually, let's do it from here. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The date on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. And so they asked, them, asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. For Jesus had slipped away into the, into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, 
See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. That's the first section. Are we ready for the next section? Have we already got some questions? Yeah, okay. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father." Whoever does not honor the, honor the Son does not, does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. A few of us have already come out. <clears throat> Sorry. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, this is the last section, if I testify about myself, my testimony is, true, is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me 
to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, yeah, you accept him. How can you, only, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you, don't, you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? There you go, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> Love it. Love it. All right. Are we ready? Are you ready to do this with me? It's all right. We we won't let you fall. But we're also not going to tell you what to think, okay? (laughs) I'm going to try to uh, help you explore and not answer some of your questions, but help you uh, think about some of the answers other people have had and maybe some of the contextual stuff. Uh, But my plan is not to tell you what to think. At the end, depending where we're at, I might share with you what I think is kind of the big idea in this text, or what, I should say, what's the big idea in this text for me? Um, But you might come to a different conclusion, but here we go. All right, here is the first section. Jesus has gone up to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. Uh, He goes to a particular pool. Um, We've got a good description of the pool. We know exactly what pool that is. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of people there. There's one guy in particular who's been sick for 38 years, and Jesus decides to heal him by saying, on your feet, up you get, and he's healed. What are some of your questions? doesn't have to necessarily be in order, but what are some of your questions just about this section, or what troubles you about this section? We've got a mic for those who are brave enough so that we can hear what you're saying. Who wants to start? <laughs> Go for it, Sammy. Oh, sorry. I, I unmuted, but I forgot to turn it on. Oh, yep, you. good times. There you go. Hello. Um, start with a superficial question. I'm assuming the description of the pool is for the readers of the passages just to know in their head specifically where this is taking place. Or is there a specific thing about the five colonnades? You know what? The five colonnades has been a real issue with identifying the pool because um, uh, one of the things that sometimes happens, we, like we know where this pool is, uh-huh. but for a long time people weren't able to find the colonnades because not all of it has been excavated. Uh, they have now found what they believe. Uh, so for a while it was like, oh, no, that pool doesn't exist because there are no co- colonnades, so John, he's just making stuff up. Okay. <laughs> Um, but we've now actually found the bases of those colonnades, uh, and we know that the materials that had the actual columns have just been used to build other stuff, some of the buildings oh. around there. There's actually a church on the top of it now. Um, so they took the stuff that was the colonnades and used it to build, which is why it was very difficult to find for quite some time. So, yeah, good question. Do you have another one while you're at it? You don't have to. I'm just checking. I have one for the next bit. <laughs> <laughs> for the next bit, cool. Didn't want to jump ahead. No, you're all good. Who else has a question for this one? Uh, Who's that? A I'm, I'm wondering if it's significant in the word Bethesda and the fact that they left it in Aramaic. That seems like an odd thing to do. 
Yeah, there's a few times where they do that, isn't there? Um, do you know what? That is one thing I didn't check out. I know that Beth means house uh, in Aramaic, Bethesda. I will have a look at that in a moment. See, what, part of what happened tonight is that I've got some of my notes on my tablet, which Bronte is now using to do the sound. So I'll have a quick jump on there in a second and I'll check. Um, but it's possibly just because that's the name that everyone knows it by. It's like out my way if you talk about the fiddler. Is anyone from out west? Yeah, if I talk about the fiddler, people know what I mean. Um, and it's not inappropriate, just to be clear. It's a pub out on Windsor Road. It's a great pub. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I can just say that abbreviated form and everyone knows that I'm talking about the mean fiddler hotel up on blah, 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 blah. Um, and so part of it is probably just locating it for the local people in the same, for, like, the same reason they're giving the, the rich description. Yeah, Sammy. No, don't apologise. It's good. Um, I'm assuming there's... So what is the cultural significance of the pool being stirred? Because the man didn't just say, yes, I want to be healed. He said, I want to get into the pool. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent question. Just um, for our details, people, has anyone noticed something else weird about the numbering? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Where's verse 4? Where's verse 4? Excellent question. Now, does anyone have, anyone that was reading along, playing along from home, does anyone have a Bible that includes verse 4? Some of you will have it in the footnotes. Thanks, Kristen. Can you read verse 4 for us? It says, some manuscripts Bethesda, some manuscripts insert, holy or in part, waiting for the moving water. And then verse 4, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Excellent. Okay, so verse 4 says, Now, an angel of the Lord would periodically rock up, not on any particular schedule, just when they were feeling it, and they would uh, do a big stir of the water, and basically last one in is a rotten egg. But first person in is very, very lucky, because the first person in the water gets healed. That was a belief about this particular pool. Because another thing about this pool is it is what we call, or not, I mean, it's not like I call it that, generally speaking, uh, but Jewish people would call it a mikvet, which is a healing pool. Um, and now the healing pools weren't actually necessarily like um, temple-sanctioned places to go for healing. I'm realized, sorry, I just realized I'm using two mics at once. I'm going to get you to hold that because you're good with, good with it. Um, yeah, so there weren't, like temple sanctioned places to go for healing. It wasn't like going and approaching the priest and offering a sacrifice and doing the right thing. They kind of existed on the edge of mainline Judaism as kind of superstitious places to go for healing. So uh, here's a thing that sometimes happens in the Bible. And you, if you're paying attention, you're going to notice this sometimes. And I hope this doesn't freak anyone out too much. But what has sometimes happened in the transmission of the biblical text is that sometimes, uh, because you know, before we could just whack it into a Word document and print things out, everything was copied by hand, right? Now, sometimes what would happen is the person who was copying it out would have questions or comments. And so they would write notes. Sometimes they would write notes in the margins. Sometimes they would put it in the text. Just a comment to help them locate it. But sometimes over time, when the next person then goes to copy that document, and they don't realize that it's what we call a gloss, an editorial gloss that's been added to give some context. They think, oh, they missed a bit and whacked it in the margin, so I'll pull it back in. And so they bring it into the text, 
and then all of a sudden, it's right there in the middle of the text, and the next person that goes to copy it just automatically copies it. So how do we figure out what's a gloss and what's not? It's going back to the earliest versions of these. So the earliest versions of the book of John do not have verse 4. There's actually some pretty big chunks of John that aren't in the earliest versions, like, say, most of chapter 8, which is one of my favorite chapters of the book of John. (laughs) I love it! Not in the earliest earliest versions. Um, You'll also notice if you're reading the Gospel of Mark... There's a short version and a long version, depending on what version you've got, where there's like almost a whole other chapter that's added on to the end of uh, the book of Mark that wasn't in the first writings of that gospel. What do we do with that? I think there's um, stuff that we can take from that that is great truth. Like I, person, like I said, I love John chapter 8. I've taught from it a lot. I love it. And I think there's reasons that it gets included in the biblical text and gets that kind of authority but sometimes it's just good to be aware that um, one of the things that hasn't happened in the bible is that god has not stood over someone's shoulder and gone all right get this down i'm going to dictate this word for word or i'm going to move your hand and make you write exactly what i want there's actually some stuff that's happened in the transmission of scripture and ignoring that doesn't make us honor the bible more you know does that make any sense All right, so yeah, that's where verse 4 went. That was a long answer to a short question. Anyone else got questions about this particular section? So verse 6, Jesus knows that he's been there for a while. He's been in this condition, and yet he asks him, do you want to get well? I'm like, Jesus, don't you know better? So that's really odd to me. Mm. Yep. Any thoughts about that? What do people think about that? There you go, Joe. I don't think that you can just assume that somebody, like you go in, that's, you can't go and assume and change somebody's body without actually asking them. Oh, yeah. So it's consent. I love that. Mm. Yeah. That's really cool. Maybe testing his faith, yeah, maybe. I mean, the guy's been there for a really long time, right? Um, sometimes we can get into patterns that are familiar as well. I find, I mean, let's remember there are other times when a blind person comes to Jesus for healing and Jesus says, and what can I do for you today? <laughs> oh, I'd like a Big Mac and fries. No, like, so there is that sense of not assuming. I think you're right, Joe. End of consent, end of, you know, Maybe, I don't know, maybe they were just like, can you sign my version of Mark? I don't, I, but yeah, I like that, I like that Jesus asks. Yeah. I, I can never tell with this one if it's like, it's like Jesus is like, what are you doing? Get in the pool. Or if he's just like trying to be nice, like, oh, so what would you like to do today? Because yeah. the fact that Jesus knows he's been lying there and then hasn't kind of like, and then he gives this long excuse, well, no one's going to help me. And so it's like, is he genuinely like, I'm stuck and no one can help me? Or is he like lying there and having a big whinge, like, well, every time it happens, no one's here to help me, so what am I going to do? Yeah. Um, but it, I feel like it changes the story for me if I read it slightly different. Yeah, it I'm does. Like, am I with this guy or against this guy? Am I like pitying him or like, you're an idiot? Yeah. 
But like then Jesus, it doesn't matter. He's like, ah, I'll heal you anyway. Yeah. But it is interesting that they have a conversation about it, right? Steph and I uh, were talking about it yesterday, and they said, but, you know, also in John, they just really like conversations. <laughs> like, John loves dialogue. Let's, let's talk about it. I, uh, when I was um, in the Pentecostal church, I heard a lot of sermons on this passage that basically um, taught about that, that section, you know, oh, there's no one to get me in the pool. It was all about you're making excuses and you just need to trust Jesus. And almost like a, um, almost a victim-blaming kind of a sermon, you know? Um, and I, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why Jesus says that. I think it's interesting that there is a conversation, that there is consent, that there is, like, what's going on for you here? Jesus just doesn't go in and, like, throw his coat over someone and expect them to get healed. Um, there's, a, there's a conversation that happens here. But I think we do have to be careful of... Uh, reading into the passage, fault on behalf of that guy that he just wasn't putting his back into this healing. You know, he wasn't trying, he didn't believe hard enough. Because I think a lot of us have actually been victims of that theology. If you just believed more sincerely, if you just prayed more, if you read your Bible more, if you just trusted God, then your problems would go away. Then you would be whole. And I think we need to be aware of that because does Jesus say any of that? No, he just goes, huh, oh, okay, well, you know, get up and walk. Like you, for you, there's reasons why you don't feel that you've been able to be healed? Okay, well, let's just cut to the chase and you say you want to be healed, so let's make that happen. All right, any other questions on this section? Can you say that again? Because that's a good point too. Well, maybe um, he will lose his livelihood if uh, he gets healed because um, he will then have to find a living, work yeah. for a living, and it's been 38 years. Yes. Yeah, so that can be that familiarity of life, right? Because, yes, there was, you could make a living from, from begging. Yes. Yep, so maybe that's part of it as well. Who knows? Who knows? Yep. This is not a question, it's just a comment. Yep. And I just want to acknowledge the weirdness of verse 8 because Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Yep. And uh, like if you don't know Jesus or if you're kind of new to Jesus, that is pretty extraordinary. <laughs> it's pretty bold, isn't it? it? Well, and it happened. Yeah. <laughs> and it happened, that's right. <laughs> he said, get up and walk, and the man got up and walked. Okay, just, uh, I'm just going to ask my wife a question. <laughs> so just say someone has been mm. an invalid for 38 years yes. and has been lying down unable to walk. Yeah, she can give that profession. Uh, just say that is the case. Yeah. Can you just walk in and go, okay, on your feet. I wish. I'd be out of a job. Uh, <laughs> what as is a, your job? As a physio... Um, 38 years is a long time to not be able to walk and your body would um, be very weak so you'd lose all your mu- you wouldn't have any muscle strength but you'd also probably have a lot of stiffness in all your joints so that would um, it would be a very long process of rehab to be able to go from not being able to walk at 38 years yeah yeah so it's not just that you know the guy suddenly 
He's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll get on that. You know, I've been so lazy, let me just finally, finally stand up. There, there's like, <laughs> there's layers of miracle <laughs> in what's going on here with this guy. Like, it's pretty, it's pretty astounding, even just from a basic physiological perspective. Even if you take anything out, just the fact that, like, it's, it's pretty astounding. Like, Bron's a physio in a major hospital in Sydney, for those that don't know. She works in ICU and stuff. Sorry, that, just another comment is, like, not just physically, there'd be a lot of rehab, but um, emotionally and mentally. So we find, like, people who have, you know, had a major accident or not being uh, mobile, uh, there's a mental thing that happens as well, like getting the confidence to be able to stand up and just walk would be a real thing. So this man is um, not just, yeah, there's a transformation there and there's a faith, definitely, yeah. that he believes that he can walk and he does. Yeah. That, like, we didn't prepare this earlier, just so you know. That, for me, actually puts some more context around uh, verse 7, like, I, I can't, like, I can't get into the pool and there's no one to help me and there's that sense of hopelessness and despair, the lack of community and the isolation and that, like, what you've just talked about in terms of whew, the emotional and psychological effects of long-term disability. Yeah, that, that actually gives me some context around verse 7, I feel like. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments or are we going to charge ahead into the next crazy bit? All right. Oh, what, <laughs> Sammy. Hi again. Um, is Jesus just being sassy when he's telling him to pick up his mat and walk? Because he knows that the Pharisees are going to be annoyed about it. And then he slinks away. Is he just trying to poke fun at them? Is he poking fun at the Pharisees? Because he's like, I know they're going to be annoyed about this. I'm just going to slink away before they arrive. Or is it more just like, a, here's a roundabout way to make sure they know I did it? I don't think we can know. See, that's the thing. However I answer that is going to be reading in from what I believe about Jesus already. Um, I mean, yesterday, Steph described Jesus, just described Jesus as just really sassy in this passage. In the whole thing, there's a lot of sass. Um, but it's very direct, isn't it? But there's also, I mean, there's a sense of, um, uh, like in the, in the Greek, this is written in the imperative voice, which is the command voice. It's like, get up, go for it, do it. But sometimes, depending on the person that says stuff to you, just them saying that can almost give you confidence as well. I don't, but I don't know. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, Jesus didn't really have a playbook of how to heal, did he? Like, what is the one methodology that Jesus uses to heal people? Totally depends on the person, right? Totally depends on the situation. And depending which passage you read you're going to come up with a different rule book. So some people with a healing ministry that I know, they just command. They just command you to be well because that's what Jesus did. I don't know a lot of people that have a healing ministry of spitting on people, um, but, you know, um, and maybe there were before COVID. I don't know. <laughs> but no one seems to, to pick that as their main methodology for healing, Right? But a lot of people love the command. But that's not always what Jesus does. Hmm. All right, let's, let's uh, plunge ahead and do a little bit more. Whoops, sorry. Try again. There we go. All right, now this is coming in a little bit to what Sammy was saying at the end there as well about 
Jesus doing this, knowing it was going to upset the Pharisees. Why? Why is it upsetting the Pharisees? Who wants to fill in some blanks? You don't need some specialist knowledge. Who wants to play with this one? Otherwise, I'm going to say, Lindsay, I see that hand. I saw with the eyes of faith. Anyone want to comment on that? <laughs> Go for it. Sammy's loving it. It's the Sabbath. Not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Picking up your mat on the Sabbath is very illegal. You're not allowed to do it. But because they're citing law that was written in the Old Testament, then ties back to the fact that Jesus is saying, oh, you're really paying close attention to the law, but not paying close attention to the prophecy that says I will come. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, we know that the Sabbath, there are very, there's a general rule of the Sabbath as a day of rest. Uh, but because, you know, we don't ever want to go into exile again as the people of God, um, we don't want to be judged for having broken the law. It's like, okay, well, I can't like completely rest on the Sabbath. Like, I have to get up and do some things. So, what am I allowed to do and still have it called rest? Uh, and one of those was about not carrying stuff. Uh, and one of those, another rule was about how far you could walk without it being called work. So there's a whole bunch of rules around that. But what else is troubling about this conversation? Who else has thoughts about that? Hey, Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> I think the verse 14 See, you're well again, stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Again, defining what the sin is, and then it was the sin that caused him to be unable to move for all those years. There's a lot of complication in that verse that just sets my teeth on edge. It's quite menacing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus, he's all love, he's all grace, there's no judgment, and he just... That is, that is a menacing verse. Whew. Wow. All right. Any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> I'm loving this. I think it's on. Is it on? Oh, it is. What if the two sentences aren't related? Aren't verbatim? Aren't related. Oh, right. So he's saying, you're well again. Great. That's a, that is a sentence. What if... Because I, the reason I say that is because I know somewhere else, somewhere else, can't tell you where, Jesus says that the sin is not what made somebody blind or something. Isn't there a part where he says that? Yeah. So there is somewhere else where he... Where, so the implication here is that the sin has made him paralysed. But he says elsewhere that that's not what happens. Mm. So if those two sentences aren't related, and then, so stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So he could be talking about some other aspect of his life where, I don't know, if there's some kind of unhelpful behaviour in his life that is having a consequence, mm -hmm. he's saying stop that unhelpful behaviour because there are worse things than being paralysed. You might lose your life, you might lose relationship or whatever. That's how I can reconcile it. Yeah, that okay. But perhaps they're not related. Fair enough. Yep. 
Yep, it's true that Jesus explicitly answered that question. It was one of the blind guys that was healed and the disciples afterwards said to Jesus, so was, was it this guy's sin or his parents' sin that were the reason that he was blind? Uh, and Jesus gives that answer. It's, was that because of anyone's sin? It's, uh, and in that situation, Jesus said it, it happened so that um, Son of Man could be glorified. So that, yeah. Yeah, interesting, hey? Yeah, go for it. Um, uh, just reading it now, it's also like, stop sinning. I feel like, what is sinning? Yes. And in this context, I'm like, maybe the dude knew exactly what Jesus meant by stop sinning. Um, and I was just kind of thinking, well, what if, what if it's the opposite? Like, what if you flip the sentence? Like Jesus says, stop sinning. So he means do the opposite of sin. So it's like, what if he's saying, now that you're good, go and be close to God so that your life is awesome, sort of vibe. Instead of stop sinning so, saying, so that something bad doesn't happen, it's essentially saying, now that you're well, go and actually live your life well, sort mm-hmm. of thing. Okay, yep. Let's, let's sit with your question for a minute. What is sin? Like, I just want you to think, because what, what Joanna has done a second ago is introduced... Uh, in part, a kind of a way of reading the Bible that's called canonical criticism, where you take the whole story of the Bible into account rather than just go, what are the words on the page of this particular passage right now in front of me? What's this verse say? But what is the arc of Scripture? Which is what you've done by going, well, in other places Jesus says this and this, you know. So let's just stop for a second. What is sin? What does Jesus call sin? Joel, you might have some thoughts about this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just thinking, looking at the words, it's two things. It's something that can be stopped. Yeah, okay, yep. That's one thing. Uh, and it's something that could potentially lead to something bad. Yeah. And I think in this context, that's all we can get, maybe. Um, yep. Without bringing in other contexts around the place. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it, it, it's a choice. It's something that can be turned on and off by the will, yep. uh, and it is something that causes damage to yourself or someone else. Yeah, okay. So something that is able to be stopped and that causes harm to you or to other people. I think that's a good, I think that's a good definition. What are some of the things that Jesus calls sin? Oh, I had more of a question. You can ask a question. Uh, I mean, if I was going to go looking at what is sinning, I would start by thinking, well, has this word sin come up in the Gospel of John before? No, never. It's a (laughs) one-off. And I have more questions about that than answers. (laughs) (laughs) What what do you know about that? About where where sin comes up in the Gospel of John? Um, To be honest, not much at this present time. (laughs) I haven't been in the Gospel of John for a little while. That's all right. Mm. What are, just think really broadly, what are some of the times when Jesus specifically accuses people of sin? Can anyone think of any of those? I'm asking because in my upbringing, what is sin? I could tell you exactly what sin is because I, I signed a document promising that I wouldn't drink and I wouldn't smoke and I wouldn't take illicit drugs. 
Uh, Like there's a list of rules and to break those rules is to sin. Is that what we learn from Jesus in the Gospels? What does Jesus call sin then? When does Jesus get in someone's face and go, dude, when does that happen? Is it when they have too many bevies? No? At the temple, there's a good one. Tell us about that one, Elk. There's probably a few there, actually. Yeah, when there are people selling goods and making exchanges, Jesus says, why have you made my father's house into a marketplace like this? Yep. Um, I think the times that he explicitly talks about sin, he talks about adultery and and murder, and he also talks about um, the the thoughts and feelings within one person that um, he considers akin to murder, which are hate and... um, Yeah. Yes, that's my answer. Yeah, no, that's good. So attitudes of heart that wish harm upon other people, that would break community, that would do the kind of stuff that Joel was talking about? Yep. Thank you, sir. Sorry, I might have a bit of a pivot from the general conversation, but, um, uh, and again, this may be a mild, mis- a wild misreading of things, but um, stop sinning. I mean, at the very top here, you see the man being accused of sinning, but not by Jesus, but by others for doing work on the Sabbath. Yeah. Perhaps that is the sin to which he's referring. Maybe a bit like how, you know, sometimes you write something on the internet or in a text message and you're being sarcastic or ironic, but people think you're being deadly serious and ominous. <laughs> and you're like, no, 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 I was joking. It's like, you know, who knows? Maybe next time, you know, if you're caught walking, you won't get cured from your lifelong illness anymore. <laughs> Like, what if it's a lol? I don't know. (laughs) You know, and that is, I think that you've just made a case for emojis in the Bible. Like, sure. Because that's how we know tone, right? The only way we know tone is emojis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what what was Jesus' tone when he was saying that? Because that could have that could completely change the meaning of it. A hundred percent. That's true. That's true. We don't know what the tone is, but that's a really good point as well, Blake. That he has been accused of sinning by the temple leaders for carrying his mat on the Sabbath, okay? One of the things that troubles me about this little section is that, okay, so we've just come up some pretty big miracles and some pretty big happenings in the book of John where like huge crowds of people have acclaimed Jesus or people that are like highly connected in the community have specifically sought out Jesus because of his reputation, yeah? Now, this guy, when the religious leaders say to him, well, who told you to pick up your walk? He's like, oh, I don't know, I don't know, didn't know the guy. I mean, maybe he didn't know the guy because apparently he hangs out at the pool a lot. Uh, and Maybe he just, you know, hasn't heard, hasn't heard the scuttlebutt, doesn't know what's going on. Or maybe there's some other reason that he's denying Jesus. Oh, there's a phrase, denying Jesus. Maybe I shouldn't have used that one. Because denying Jesus is problematic in the Gospels, isn't it? Failing to give Jesus credit for who he is and what he does is actually really, really problematic in Scripture. 
I don't know, but now I could be reading in too. I'm just thinking about some of the big questions there. So it's problematic for me that this guy doesn't know who Jesus is. But it's also problematic for me that the religious leaders are more concerned about him breaking the Sabbath law by carrying his mat than they are inclined to celebrate that a guy that was unable to walk for 38 years now has his life back. Like, that is problematic to me. And in one sense, rather than orienting himself with Jesus, but hey, maybe he really didn't know who Jesus is, the guy's like, oh, I don't want to upset the religious leaders, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I just know I'm walking now. It's a weird thing. I, don't, I just did what I was told. I'm just obeying the rules. I don't know. But I do find it really interesting that after he has a conversation with Jesus, suddenly he's happy to tell everyone. He's happy to tell everyone who it was that healed him. That's interesting to me. Hmm. Because in the two stories that we've just come off the back of, when people encounter Jesus, people that worship God the wrong way and are of the wrong ethnicity and the wrong gender, when they encounter Jesus and have an experience with him, they tell everybody and it affects the community in a very, very positive way. This guy initially doesn't even want to own that it's Jesus. Hey, maybe he genuinely didn't know. I don't know. But after Jesus gives him this challenge, suddenly he, he is willing to tell people. And there's a ripple effect that happens from there. So that's interesting. Can we read into it? I don't know. I think it's good to note it. That's all. All right, let's do one more section because uh, I don't want to completely wear you out. All right, here we have the whole thing about the Sabbath. We'll have a little bit of a look at this section uh, and then we might call it. What are some of the questions or challenges that you have looking at this section? Or what is some of the background that might be helpful to know in order to understand it? But I'm more just concerned about the position of the Pharisees. Like Jesus is making it very clear what the scriptures in the Old Testament have been saying about his arrival. I think it's quite scary that the Pharisees are misunderstanding the gospel and misunderstanding Jesus, and that clearly has very severe consequences in Jesus' mind, that yeah. they are not recognizing who, she, who he is, who they are, who she is. But it does then call questions into my mind of the dangers of misunderstanding the text today, that yeah. Jesus and God would still hold judgment against us for misunderstanding the gospel in what would seem like clear ways that we may have just misunderstood. Yeah. It's pretty full on, like his critique of their reading of scripture. I mean, if we, if we do jump ahead a little bit, where's the bit where he just smashes them? Verse 39. You think you've got it down pat because you study the scriptures. You know exactly what they say. You know the rules. You know exactly what to do and how to interpret this. He's like, you don't know squat. <laughs> you don't know squat. There's a thing that happens in the book of John, and you'll see it a few times in this passage. Jesus keeps referring both to being well, this idea of wellness or health, um, which is very closely related to an idea that we get in the Old Testament, the idea of shalom or wholeness. Um, shalom is sometimes being translated peace, 
But shalom in the, in the Bible isn't just that we're not arguing. It's a sense of life as it was intended to be. The wholeness of creation, restored order, things as they're, as they're meant to be. Uh, and when Jesus says to this man, and we've got throughout this passage this word, you're well, I've made him well, I've made him well. There's this sense of he has been restored to wholeness as a person. And that, even as I'm saying it, it clicks back into what you were saying, Bron, about that disability, it does, it's not just physical, it's social and emotional and relational, like it's all of those things as well. But Jesus says to him, I've made you well. But the other thing that happens a lot in this passage, and in the book of John in particular, is this word life. This word life. And there's two main words for life in the New Testament. There's one that is bios, or a Greek word bios, which means like your biological life, okay? Breathing, having a pulse, walking around, that's your bios life. But in this passage, Jesus is constantly using the Greek word zoe, okay? Zoe, which means um, it's not just your breathing in and out life, it's this life as it was meant to be. It's, again, it's related to that idea of shalom. And Jesus actually says a whole bunch of times, um, zoe aone, or aone zoe, which means like eternal life, ongoing life. And that happens a whole bunch in, uh, in this section as well, um, where Jesus begins to talk about that the Father is the one who gives life. He gives zoe. God is not just the one who allows you to breathe. God is the one who allows you to have fullness of life, to experience life, to enjoy laughter and tears and hugging someone that you love. Like it's this huge, rich life as things are meant to be. That's the word that Jesus continually uses. He's not saying you are alive. He's saying you're living. I can, I can make you live the way that life is meant to be. Does that kind of make a little bit of sense? Okay. But the religious leaders here, they're not focused on living, they're focused on keeping the rules so that we don't end up on detention. I mean, in exile, you know, like dead. They're very, very focused on particular things. And so, yeah, Jesus goes back and uh, talks about the purpose of God. Uh, there was a belief in um, the rabbis taught that God works on the Sabbath, which is really interesting, right? Because we say that we um, get the Sabbath from Genesis chapter 2, that when God, sorry, end of Genesis 1, well, anyway, um, that when God had finished doing the work of creation on the seventh day, God rested, and that's why we should be resting on the seventh day. But there was a belief that, you know, God does work on the seventh day. We know that because, you know, babies are born, and sometimes it rains, and creation just keeps on ticking. And so the belief was that God works on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus here says, yeah, I'm working on the Sabbath, big deal. What's his justification for that? He's God, it's fine. That's right. He says, but my dad's working and I'm in the family business. Essentially is what he says. And that's what gets them so ticked off. That Jesus says, dudes, this is a family business. Like, I'm just joining my dad. This is what we do. And he's equating himself with God by saying, of course I'm working on the Sabbath because the work of God is to bring bios life and to bring zoe life. That's what God does. So, duh, yeah, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it every day, regardless. All right, any final questions here? Because I think we probably need to wrap up. 
You guys have had some awesome questions. This has been really interesting. What about you, Pete? You're looking puzzled. Did you have any questions? You don't have to. I'm just checking in. You're good. I'm good. I'm good. Yes, Rob. Um, so I just uh, get confused where... Um, ah, sorry, where's the part where he says that... Um, is there another slide or was this yeah, the last Yeah, there's heaps of slides. I had this one up before as well. Yeah, that's where I, Yeah, there we go. Um, don't be amazed at this. Uh, time is coming when all one, yeah. who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Um, so that's sort of like... It doesn't gel well with my evangelical understanding of uh, grace and, you know, I, or, or who's that talking about? Is that talking about everyone? Is that talking about those, like, or where does that fit in, you know, my evangelical, like, I put my faith in Jesus and I'm saved kind of thing? Yeah, right. Does that, yeah, yeah, does that's, that? that's really interesting. Do you know what? I was just talking to someone the other day who... Um, an evangelical pastor who's just about to start his doctorate looking at uh, this thing called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of God, um, which is an idea that used to be, they used to get a lot of focus in evangelical uh, preaching, Protestant preaching, um, which is this idea that kind of exactly referring to what Jesus is talking about here, this idea that when the resurrection happens, when everyone rises, when Jesus comes again, um, that there will be a judgment and that we will be judged uh, on the basis of our faith in Christ, that we will be judged on the basis of how we've lived our life. Now, that's something that has largely fallen out of favor in preaching, um, to just focus on the pray this prayer after me and you're all good. But there is a huge strand of thought throughout the New Testament um, that teaches that we are accountable for the way that we live their lives, live our lives. Okay, um, think of something like the book of James, where James says to believers, "Hey, faith without works is dead." <laughs> like, come on, guys, faith without works is dead. And some people get really upset about that. Martin Luther, um, who's the guy who kind of one of the guys who started the Protestant Reformation, he wanted to rip the whole book of James out of the Bible because he didn't like it. And he didn't like what it said because Martin Luther was really all about Paul. He loved what Paul said, right? So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works that anyone can boast. Like it's all Jesus and it's none of me and I don't have to do anything. Uh, and some people thought, well, Paul and James are like going like this, giving opposite points. Now, I, don't, I personally don't think that. But I think part of what this is pointing to, and maybe, maybe even that can give some context to the question we were asking before, when Jesus seems to have harsh words for the guy, like, stop sinning or worse stuff is going to happen. Maybe we need to come back to a thing that Jesus and a lot of the writers in the New Testament that come to a lot, which is, we are actually accountable for how we live our lives. And in fact, if we did have the time to follow through in this passage, you'll see that Jesus has this whole conversation about doing the work of God. I have come to do the work of God. And I'm going to keep doing the works of my Father. Now, if I was like preaching like an old school sermon about this, um, then 
kind of my big idea, the thing that I would say to you about this passage is that bringing life to the world, bringing shalom to the world means caring more about people than about rules. Caring more about loving people and bringing them to wholeness, bringing them to life than about whether they've kept the rules that I've set up in my head as like the benchmark for whether or not you get to know Jesus. That's kind of the big idea for me. But following on from that and totally related to that is this idea that we get from Jesus. That if I say that I am a follower of Jesus, like Christian means little Christ. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus, then I need to do the works that Jesus did. So what are the works that Jesus did in this passage? Is it keeping every single rule that the Pharisees told him to keep? No, it's giving a damn about people. It's seeing, hurting people and bringing them to life. And not just physical life, but wholeness in their whole person. That is the work of God. That is the work of Jesus. That's the work of a follower of Jesus. Like for me, that's where we have to land with this passage. And I think that's what that's talking about, Rob. When it talks about that judgment. Because there's also a whole bunch of places in the New Testament where Jesus effectively says, you know what, there's going to be people that go, yeah, yeah, I'm all about Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm sorry, who are you? Well, why? Why in the context of what Jesus says, in the context of what Paul says, in the context of what James says, in the context of what Hebrews says? Like, why? Because if we claim to love Jesus, we should be doing the stuff that Jesus did. And the stuff that Jesus did is engaging with people whom others have said, no, you are too far gone to ever have a chance at salvation. You are too far gone to be able to know life. You are too far gone racially, ethnically, sexually, whatever the case might be, you are out there and there's no hope from you, for you. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. This is what life looks like for you. Does that make sense? Think of the Samaritan woman. Every boundary is in place to keep her outside of the kingdom of God. And Jesus makes her, like has this incredible conversation with her and she becomes the first person in the New Testament to preach the gospel and people come to Jesus. And there's this little, there's this tiny little verse at the end of that, at the beginning of the next section after the story of the Samaritan woman where it says, now after Jesus had been there two days, he went and blah, blah, blah. We go, oh yeah, cool. He was there a couple of days. That's nice. Well, wait a minute, back up the truck. In Jewish thinking... The way that you knew someone had genuinely converted and was definitely a disciple was having spent two days with the rabbi under their teaching. So after Jesus had spent two days with these Samaritan people that had come looking for him, then he's ready to go to the next thing. What is that telling us? These Samaritans are genuine believers in Jesus. And now suddenly we are in the heart of you know, the religion worshipping the one true God. And that's not the message that we're getting. We're going, whoa, guys, you're doing it wrong. You're caring more about your rules and your rituals than about people that need life, not just breathing in and out, but life, life. And if you're going to associate yourself with Jesus, then you should be caring about that too shouldn't just be caring about whether you are keeping the rules 
I think my biggest critique of Western Christianity is it's so flipping individualistic. It's all about me, my salvation, me praying this prayer, my personal devotions, my personal holiness, my personal whatever the hell. Jesus is not about my personal rule keeping. He's about, is my life bringing life to the world? Is my presence in your life making your life richer and fuller and better? Is my presence in your world declaring that Jesus loves you and that you are embraced by God and that you can know life? I I think that's the gospel. And I think that's actually at the heart of what this passage is about. You can disagree. That's okay. I'm happy for you to disagree because I don't actually think that we're meant to read the Bible to get the one message that this passage is saying. I think it is a rich, complicated text that we should be able to come back to time and time and time again and go, what the heck? And be surprised again and discover new things about Jesus and stuff that challenges us in our way of being in the world. But for now, I hope that this passage challenges every, every one of us this week about our way of being in the world and about our concern for other people, and about whether we are taking the time to stop and notice the people that others have walked straight past, people maybe on the fringes, whether we're taking the time to notice and to listen and to bring life. Yeah? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are unpredictable. And yes, sometimes you are sassy. Sometimes you, sometimes you are like really, really blunt. And sometimes you are so, so gentle. But it seems to me that uh, you save your greatest sass or your greatest bluntness, your greatest challenge for religious leaders who think they've got it all sorted and their role in life is to tell other people what to do and what rules they've broken. And you don't seem to like that very much. And so I want to take a moment to acknowledge and repent of the fact that there have been many, many times in my life when I have taken that approach and I have thought that it was my job as a Christian to point out where other people are breaking the rules. And I know, I know that I've done the stuff that Elkie was talking about before, that uh, there have been like actions and attitudes of my heart that have brought harm to other people that have broken community. And I own that and I ask that you would continue to convict me of the, the ways and the times when I'm doing that so that I can continue to repent, continue to turn towards you and orient my life on you, Jesus. But I also ask that, that as a community and yes, me personally too, that you would show me how to join you in your work just as you joined the Father in the Father's work. Show me how to join you in the work you're continuing to do today of bringing life to people, of bringing wholeness to people, of bringing hope and and a new reality to people who have lost hope. Jesus, I want to do the work that you're doing. And we as a community want to do the work that you're doing. 
So we ask that you would continue to fill us with your spirit, to teach us by your word, and, and that we would continue to teach one another as we live in relationship with you and with each other, that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds so that we can live like you. Jesus, I pray that your mission would be our mission and that your life would be our life. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.